This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what man can do to me. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers for the freedom that we have in this nation to do so in order to study your word. We thank you for your word, that it is a complete and sufficient revelation for us, that it informs us of the key principles we need for salvation and for the spiritual life and provides the framework for all of the thinking. And Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of prayer, that as believers, priests, believer priests we have direct access to your throne because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross on our behalf. Now, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth of doctrine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sunday morning I said I would say a little bit about the conference this last week. And this is called, for those of you who don't know or have forgotten, this is called a, the WHW Conference on Biblical Exposition. And it's been going on for ten years. And the way it got started was about 1989, there was a conference. There was one in Houston. There may have been one in Dallas, but I know there was one in Houston. It was called COBE, C-O-B-E, Conference on, or Congress on Biblical Exposition. And that was one of these high-profile, highly announced and promoted uh big pastors conferences with all the big names from all the big big uh, radio ministries and churches and Dallas seminary etc cetera, etc cetera. they're trying you know putting on this big show on how to teach everybody how to exposit the word and many of them don't know but nevertheless at the end of that um, at the end of that conference uh, they always put on a big show, and sometimes I wonder how much they really teach, because I've listened to many of those guys, and it doesn't get very deep. It just scratches the surface. But anyway, these uh, three black pastors came out, and they're all fairly well-known in their denomination, George Waddles, R.A. Williams, and Larry Harris. And they decided, we can do this. Our pastors need this kind of material. There's a lot of black pastors out there who have not had much formal education. They haven't had seminary or Bible college. And we can do a tremendous amount to teach these men how to be better expositors of the Word of God, how to get into it. So the idea was born, and they talked about it, and a year later they began, and I think they had about 60 show up at that first 
first conference, and each year it's increased uh, 10, 20, 30 percent or so. And this last year, I don't know, I think there were between seven and 800. I know that I counted up the seats in the, in the big ballroom, and there were 870 chairs in the ballroom, and nearly every one was filled. So uh, I don't think registrations were that high, but I think there were a few people who came and kind of snuck in the back door. But it was uh, the way they set this up, which is an excellent way to do it, is in the mornings they have a four-hour block that runs from 8 to noon. And there are three different sessions that go on, and they divide everybody into three groups depending on how many years they've been coming to this conference. And one group studies a passage. They have a, a, each group is given a passage. This year, the first year group was given the passage 1 Timothy 2, uh, 8 through 15. The second year group had the same passage. And the advanced group, which these, the, the second group is the guys who've been there two to three years, and the advanced group is those who've been there four years or more. They study 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13. Now, this passage is the one that deals with uh, where Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over men in the church. This passage is the passage that deals with the cessation of tongues. So we specifically chose these passages in order to deal with crucial issues that many of these pastors are facing in their, in their local churches. So they, um, let's say you take the first year guys and the first morning they go down there and they get a four hour session on how to study a text, a paragraph of scripture in terms of the culture, cultural background, what we call isagogics, and then the context in the scripture, how to really get into that look at the context that every sentence is in a paragraph, every paragraph is in a subsection, which is in a section, which is in a division, which is in an overall book, which is in the New Testament, which is in the Old Testament. Which, I mean, which is in the whole Bible. So they get culture and context. Now, another group at the same time is learning how to do word studies. And so they'll have that passage. And then the other group is learning how to, how to look at it in terms of grammar. And they're learning some basic principles on how to investigate the syntax of a passage. So you have the same group of guys. First year, they're looking at this passage, 1 Timothy 2. First morning, they do culture and context. Second morning, they learn how to do word studies on that passage. And the third morning, they learn syntax, four hours. And so as a teacher, I would go in and on Tuesday morning, I would teach uh, the first year, or really I start with the third year group, do a syntax on that passage. Really, I spend about two hours just teaching some general principle of Greek grammar and how to look at it, how to use various tools that are available today, because uh, none of these guys have, well, few of them have any formal training in Greek. There's a few that have had maybe a semester or maybe a year, and you can look at analytical Greek New Testament. You can look at a number of other tools that are available today, and they can do some rudimentary things, but you have to teach them what is a present tense, what's an aorist tense, what's the significance and we develop notebooks and handouts and everything like that for, for them. And then uh, the next morning, I would go into the uh, second year group and do the same thing uh, for the First Timothy 2. In that group, we focused on participles. The next year, they'll look at infinitives. 
And then in this group, the first-year group, they just have to learn some basic things about nouns and verbs. And then in the afternoon, there are plenary sessions that involve the whole group, and we cover different uh, aspects of archaeology, creation, and evolution. The main speaker from 2 to 3 every afternoon was Wayne House, who was a professor of mine at Dallas, not, well, yeah, he was a professor of mine. I took one course with him, and he turned a lot of the work that we did in that course into a book, which he co-authored with Tommy Ice, who was here last time. See, it's a small world. And uh, those of us who are out there really teaching the Word, it's funny how we keep running into each other. In fact, Wayne has a book coming out in the fall on prophecy charts that he uh, co-authored with Randy Price. Randy Price was the guy who introduced me to Tommy Ice, so it's a small world. Randy and I have been friends since high school, so it's just funny how we just keep running into the same guys. But um, that afternoon goes till about 5.30, and then <clears throat> a couple of evenings, we had a banquet one evening, and then the last night, Thursday night, there was a large, uh, large like church service. Two or three choirs sang and preaching. It was really something. See, there's that church service, there might have been 1,000, 1,200 people in there. So it's a lot of fun. And it's very gratifying to hear the number of men that would come up and say, well, last year this was just so new to me. Last year was their first year. They'd never seen anything like this. Never heard any kind of approach to the Scriptures like this. And it was like... You know, Alice in Wonderland. They just had, they left with their mouths open, thinking, coming, thinking they knew something about the Bible and how to preach and how to study the Bible and leaving wondering how they could do what they did from such a level of ignorance. But they went home and they would come back. Guys would come up to me and say, you know, all that stuff you taught last year, I got the tapes and I've been um, teaching that for the last year at my church. So, you know, it's just exciting to see the impact. Uh, and this year, because I'm coming back a second year, so there's more of a familiarity. A number of pastors have come up to me and asked if I could come to their church to speak for a week or so. So there are several things like that in the mill that will take me away, but we're trying to work things out so we won't be missing midweek Bible class. We'll just bump things over to th- Thursday night when that happens. So you have to watch your Bible, your, uh, watch your uh, bulletin to know when those changes are, and we will let you know. Now, there is one coming up the week before Thanksgiving, and we will let you know, but it's not until, until then. And I hope... I'm trying to get R.A. to come out here. He needs to take a little vacation, and he and I need to do some planning. What happened in this thing, the way I got involved was the, the middle guy in the group, W.H.W., stood for Waddles, Harris, and, and Williams, and Harris went to be with the Lord last summer. And he was the guy who taught Greek syntax and grammar, and they needed somebody. And one of my former students was on their board of directors, and he said, I know just the guy, but I haven't seen him in 15 years, and I have to track him down. So he tracked me down. And that's how I got involved, and my involvement seems to be getting uh, greater as each as the year goes by. And it seems like the Lord is bringing this ministry 
and just I don't know where it's going to go. It's, it's fascinating to watch this thing happen because of the impact that it has on so many pastors. And we've already picked up, I think, a, at least a couple of tape orders just since last week as a result of that, uh, as a result of that conference. In fact, speaking of the Internet, just to let you know the impact that this congregation is having, we had over 400 distinct visitors to our website Saturday, Sunday, and Monday alone just in those three days. And they came from people, there were 26 from Sweden. We've had people from Tonga, which is a small island out in the middle of the South Pacific, Morocco, uh, three or four from New Zealand, Australia, most of the U.S. Uh, It's phenomenal what is happening with the ministry at Preston City Bible Church. And this is like a, this is truly a mission outreach. Uh, why, you know, we, we still need to send out foreign missionaries, but we are just through that website having a tremendous impact. We've had tape orders from the Netherlands, from Poland, from a number of other uh, foreign countries, as well as having people just come now directly to the website where they can just uh, click on it and immediately listen to the John series just right over their computer so they don't even have to order tapes. So it's exciting to see how all of this is developing and how the Lord's using this. Well, we need to get into the Word tonight. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We have been studying the first three verses. We're specifically down to the second half of verse 2 and verse 3, which deal with the whole subject of prayer. The last part of verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And this brings up the very problem of the church that James is dealing with in this epistle. Apparently, they are in rank carnality, out of fellowship. They are motivated by many mental attitude sins, which is developing into conflicts within the congregation. It is they, They're not uh, praying because they're in carnality, number one, and when they do, it is simply to, motivated by their own lusts and their own desires. And it will be down in verse 6 and 6 through 10 that James comes back to deal with this whole issue of carnality. Now, when I ended the last time before I went out of town, we saw the mandate, you do, or the statement, you do not have because you do not ask. And I gave you seven reasons, or six reasons, seven reasons why people do not pray. Seven reasons why people do not pray. Number one, people lack confidence in being heard because they do not understand confession and cleansing. So they've sinned and they feel guilty. They don't understand what happens when they confess their sins, that they're immediately forgiven. God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and it's no longer an issue. He never remembers it again. He's not going to come back tomorrow and say, okay, now you can't really pray yet because you haven't done enough penance because of that sin you committed. Once you admit your sin to God, 1 John 1, 9, then we're instantly cleansed 
and it is no longer an issue in terms of our fellowship. Now, we may still have some divine discipline to go through, but it is no longer an issue in terms of fellowship. Point number two, the second reason people don't pray is they're ignorant of Bible doctrine related to prayer. They're ignorant of Bible doctrine related to prayer. They don't know that they're supposed to pray. They don't make prayer a priority in their life. They think that somehow it's just something that people do. They come up in certain denominations and they memorize certain prayers and they they don't understand anything about what the Bible really teaches about prayer. The third reason people don't pray is they are spiritually ignorant of the mandate to pray. They do not realize that this is a major uh, issue in the spiritual life. It is standard operating procedure according to the grammar of the passages. And they are ignorant that there is a mandate to pray, so they become too busy, too wrapped up, too self-absorbed, and too caught up with temporal things to focus on the Lord and to maintain regular communication with the Lord. Point number four, there's the problem of doubt. We saw this in James chapter 1, verse 5, that when we pray, we are to pray on the basis of faith, trusting God. And if we don't, don't have an exclusive reliance upon God, which is what faith is, then the result is that we are like the waves of the sea, driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine. And what James tells us is that you have to have that exclusive reliance upon God. You're not trusting God in something else at the same time if you're going to have your prayers answered. So because some people doubt God that He's really there and that prayer really changes things, they lack faith and they don't come to the Lord in prayer. Point number five, some have also experienced disappointment and frustration in life. And because they have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for some issue, and God is either saying, no, He's not going to answer that prayer, or He has not going to answer it for some time, they react in bitterness towards God. They become frustrated. They get into mental attitude sins, resentment towards God, and self-centeredness and arrogance compounds the problem, and so they just don't pray. Six, some people are fatalistic in their view of the spiritual life. They think, well, if God really wants it to happen, it'll happen. So they just don't pray. They just think that, well, I'll just put everything in the Lord's hands and He'll give me what He wants. And then they just uh, have this fatalistic view of, of prayer. And seventh, the seventh reason people don't pray is because in carnality they are committed to self-reliance instead of reliance upon God. Now, Matthew 7, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened to him. Now, in those verses, we have uh, present active imperatives. Present imperative means that this is to be a standard operating procedure. In Greek... You can express a command one of two ways. One way uses a present tense in the imperative mood, and the imperative mood is the mood of of command or mandate. This expresses all of the different uh, key principles and rules for the spiritual life. And that's not legalism to say that there are rules. That's what all the mandates do, is to say this is how you walk by means of the Spirit, is there are these these rules, that's not legalism. You're not trying. Legalism means that somehow, in some way, you're focusing on external observance instead of internal transformation, and you're thinking that by doing this, it somehow 
um, gains approval or you gain approbation with God. And that's not what these are. The aorist imperative has a slightly different impact. This stresses the action as a priority. Now, that does not mean that just because something is in the present tense, it's not a priority. It's just a slightly different shift of emphasis. This indicates that this is to be standard operating procedure day in, day out in the spiritual life. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing with his threefold repetition, ask, seek, knock. He is emphasizing that prayer is to be standard operating procedure in the spiritual life. So let's look at the doctrine of prayer to see how prayer changes things. And we'll begin with a definition. Definition of prayer. Prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and the privilege to communicate directly with God. Now that never before happened in history. In the Old Testament, they did not have direct access to God. They had to go through a priesthood. In some way, in some level, every Old Testament saint had to go through a priest. There had to be a sacrifice in the tabernacle in some way underlying that prayer. And that was teaching something very visual, that the only way you could go before God was on the basis of a sacrifice. But once Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, it opened the door of access to God so that every believer in the church age is a priest. Every single believer is a royal priest to God, and we have direct access to God. We don't have to go through some some human intermediary. We go through Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator, between God and man. So grace is so prayer is a grace provision of the royal priesthood of the church whereby the church age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. And sometimes we forget what a privilege that is. The purpose of the communication is first to acknowledge our sin. I'll have more to say about that in just a minute, but we have to acknowledge or admit our sin, and that maintains or restores our fellowship with the Lord. Secondly, to express adoration and praise to God. There's an element of worship to prayer. If you read many of the Psalms, they're what is classified as praise Psalms. There's no petition there. It's just an expression of praise to God for who He is and what He has done in our lives, the way He has answered prayer. So that's one aspect of prayer. Adoration and praise, giving thanks to God for what He has done, interceding for others and conveying our own personal needs, petitions, and conducting intimate conversations with God. Now, I try to classify or categorize the elements of prayer with this acronym, CATS. The C stands for confession, the use of 1 John 1.9. The A stands for adoration, which is our uh, prayer and worship towards, the, towards God. Uh, the T is for thanks expressing our thanks and gratitude to the Lord for all He has done. And supplication expresses our intercession for others 
and our petition for our own personal needs. So, all of this makes up prayer, and any one of these can comprise a prayer. You can have a prayer that is nothing more than a prayer of confession. Make sure we're restored to fellowship. You can have a prayer that's adoration, just expressing praise to God, or just a prayer of thanksgiving. And these can be long, they can be short, they can be a clause, they can be a paragraph. And supplication, intercession, and petition. Now, why is it important to have confession here? This is question has been raised. Why do we need to confess sins if we have forgiveness at the cross? That's one question. Ephesians 1.7 talks about the fact that in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And some have come along and said that, well, if we have forgiveness, then that, uh, if we're saved, then that means that we have forgiveness, so it doesn't matter. We don't have to confess our sins. But just as salvation is spoken of in the Scriptures having three phases, phase one is when we are saved from the penalty of sin at the cross. All that takes is faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And at phase one, let's say we have forgiveness one. We have forgiveness from all pre-salvation sins. This forgiveness one... One also provides the basis for all other forgiveness. But five minutes after we're saved, or five seconds after we're saved, we say something or think something that is a sin, that is a violation of God's character. And so even though that has been paid for by the cross, 1 John 1, 7 says that the blood of Christ continually cleanses from all sin, that provides the basis for all forgiveness, something still happens that affects our relationship with God in the same way that you parents realize that your child is your child. And you love them, and that love is never affected by their disobedience. But when they disobey you, when they're angry, when there is resentment there, there is something that comes between you and your child. It doesn't destroy the relationship, but it hinders its rapport. And that's what happens when we sin in the Christian life. So we have... Uh, forgiveness one at salvation of all pre-salvation sins. It also provides the basis for forgiveness for all post-salvation sins. But forgiveness too is what takes place in 1 John 1 9. That's why 1 John 1 7, the blood of Christ continually cleanses from all sin precedes 1 John 1, 9. If 1 John 1, 7 meant that it doesn't matter, you don't have to admit or acknowledge your sins, Christ paid the penalty, so you're forgiven completely at the cross, and therefore you never again have to worry about sin or confess sin, then 1 John 1, 9 would not be two verses later. You have the general principle giving the basis in 1, 7, and then the specifics... In one nine, if we confess, and that word is the Greek word homologeo, looks like this in the Greek, H-O-M-O meaning the same, L-O-G-O meaning to speak, and it doesn't mean to say the same thing or look at it the same way, that's what's called an etymological error. It means to admit or acknowledge guilt that you have done something. 
It doesn't mean even to feel sorry about it. You go into a courtroom, you may not feel sorry that you were speeding at all. Maybe you were late and you had a very legitimate reason for doing 50 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone, and so you don't feel a bit sorry that you were speeding, but you sit there and you say, yes, I did it. You confess and admit your guilt. Now, in sin, if we have an attitude, well, I'm glad I did it, Lord, and I'd do it again, well, then maybe confession forgives us for a nanosecond. But, you know, at the same time that we're confessing, we're confessing in a manner that is using grace as a license to sin, and so we don't get, get into fellowship and stay there long enough for it to do us any good. And that's typical of immature baby believers. Most immature believers, at one point or another, use 1 John 1.9 as a license to sin. In fact, um, I think it was somebody told me this one time, a book that Chuck Swindoll has out called Grace Awakening. One of the few good things I think he, I've heard him say is that uh, if, you're not pre, if people are not abusing grace, people in your congregation aren't abusing grace, you're probably not teaching it very clearly. You know, even Paul had that problem in Romans 6, 1, when he said, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin that grace might abound? Paul had that problem. When you teach grace, people are going to think that they can get away with sin. But God's going to discipline us. For whom the Lord loves, He's going to discipline. He's going to chasten. So we have to confess our sins. If we admit or acknowledge our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us our sins applies to those sins that we admitted. Cleansing from all unrighteousness applies to all the other sins that we either forgot we committed or we committed out of ignorance and didn't know they were sins. So at that point, the slate's wiped clean and we are restored to a position back in fellowship with the Lord in the bottom circle here where we are in a position of potential spiritual growth. Just because we're in fellowship doesn't mean we're automatically going to grow. We have to take in the Word of God and in the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit apply the Word of God. And as we learn the Word of God, that's when spiritual growth takes place. So we see that forgiveness functions in two realms. Forgiveness, one, at the cross, pre-salvation sins and lays the basis for forgiveness, two, which is the result of confession. Now, a couple of verses are really important that I think some folks overlook. One is in Psalm 66:18, where the psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, we need to take this apart and look at the exegesis here in the Hebrew. And the word translated regard is the Hebrew ra'ah, which means to see or to look. It's in the cow perfect, and it means to see, to observe, to discern. So he is, the psalmist is saying, if I look, if I see, if I observe iniquity somewhere, and it is stated as in my heart, it is the noun lave, Looks like this, plus the preposition be, which means in. So it looks like this, be, uh, bi, 
L-E-B. And lave refers to the heart, which is the innermost thinking part of the soul. And many times, especially in poetic literature, it's used as a figure of speech for the whole person, for the entire person. And so here I think it's talking about not just looking into the thinking part of your soul to see if there's mental attitude sin. It's looking at the whole life so that we could correct the translation here. If I observe iniquity in my life, mental, verbal, or overt sins, the result is that Yahweh will not hear. And there we have the the Hebrew word for hear, which is uh, best understood or translated to simply mean to listen. Obviously, he hears in the sense that he knows what everybody's praying for. If God's omniscient, he knows everything that the unbeliever prays for. He knows everything that the carnal believer prays for. He's omniscient. Of course he hears, but he doesn't listen. There's no fellowship there. So there is a clear statement in Psalm 66:18 that sin impacts the prayer life of the believer and must be dealt with. Now, there's a couple of passages in the New Testament that also deal with this, aside from simply 1 John 1, 9. And these two passages deal with it from more of a, shall we say, metaphorical framework, figurative speech. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says, Therefore, I want the men, and there it uses the word on air, males in the congregation, I want the males in every place to pray. So this is expressing, uh, it's, it's a uh, infinitive of command there with the uh, present active uh, indicative bulamite. I want the men to pray, indicating purpose. Lifting up holy hands. Now what does that mean, lifting up holy hands? Well, first of all, the word here, holy, is not the word hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, which is the normal word for holy. This is the word hasios, H-O-S-I, I think that's an omega, O-S, hasios. And this has to do with that which has been cleansed, has more of a cleansed nuance to it or shade of meaning. Now, in the ancient world, or it's still true even in the Middle East, they were very demonstrative and emotional in their prayer. And the way they would pray, the, pros- the, the posture, if you, look at, if you look at how people are praying when they're at the wailing wall, if you see a picture of the Jews at the wailing wall, they don't bow their heads and close their eyes like we do. When they pray, they lift up their hands and they open their eyes and they look to heaven. That is the standard posture that Jews took when they prayed. There's nothing in the scripture that mandates that. That's why you have trouble in some churches where some people think that they're a little holier because they raise their hand or they'll raise both hands. And in some churches they decide they're going to do it just like the Jews do. So they're going to put their hands this way, and others will put their hands that way. And then I always like the ones who just stand there looking holy, and they have their arm bent, because they really don't want to get it too far up there, but they want to make sure they have the right posture. It's really silly. 
because that was the cultural way in which they prayed. So the interpretation here needs to take into account the historical and cultural context. And just as Paul says that the men are to pray lifting up holy hands, that is, hands that have been cleansed, and then in our passage here in James 4, if you look down to verse 8, James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's picking up on this same metaphor of cleansing the hands. Now, what is that all about? It, it draws on the picture that is painted for us in the imagery from the priesthood in the temple and tabernacle of the Old Testament. That whenever the priest would go into the, t- the tabernacle of the temple before he went into the holy place where he met with God, he would first have to come to the golden laver that was outside. And there he had to wash his hands and he had to wash his feet because the feet represented going places he shouldn't and the hands represented doing things he shouldn't. In other words, there was, it represented sin. And so he had to wash his hands and he had to wash his feet before he, every single time, before he could have access to God. And it is a picture of confession. In fact, the same word is used when they, the Jews translated the, uh, the uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That translation was called the Septuagint. And it translates that word cleansing by the Greek word katharizo, which is the same word that's used in 1 John 1, 9 for cleansing and is used here. And the point is that all that these these verses, first Timothy first uh, Timothy two eight and James four eight, both picture the fact that prior to access to God in prayer there has to be confession. There has to be admission, acknowledgement of guilt. So it's very important that the believer go through the process of having a prayer of confession prior to stating his petitions to God to make sure he is in fellowship. Now, let's look at another of other principles. That was just by way of introduction, the importance of confession. Secondly, Matthew 6, 5 and 6, Jesus says, When you pray... You are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. In other words, prayer is not some overt spiritual exercise. We are to pray, but it is to be a matter of privacy between the believer and God. Now, this does not rule out public prayer, but when you pray in public, when Thanksgiving's coming up, and when you pray at the Thanksgiving dinner, and I know some of you, uh, you'll be asked because everybody thinks that since you go to Bible class and because you go to church on Sunday, that you'll be asked to pray. And there are one or two of you that when you sit there and look at all your pagan relatives sitting around the bird, you're going to want to take that opportunity to evangelize your relatives. That's wrong. You'll just do the job, thank the Lord for the food, and move on. Prayer is not the time 
for you to communicate the gospel to your family members. It will probably irritate the ones who are really hungry and ready to get into the uh, into that turkey. And so they will just have resentment for you after that, and you will destroy any opportunity you might have had to witness to them. So public prayer should be confined to the purpose for which it is designed. I'll never forget the time, the story. I, I, I was a kid when I heard it, when uh, Pastor Theme was invited to pray at a Rice football game. Now, Rice University is a major university down in Houston. And, uh, in fact, it's ranked usually with the Ivy League schools in terms of its academics. But he was not, not supposed to offend anybody by saying the name of Jesus. So he said, okay, I'll pray. So he went out there and he prayed that all the men on all the teams would fight hard and hit each other hard. And each team would do their very best. At the end, he closed in the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one and only Savior who died on the cross for all of our sins. <laughs> Amen. So there are ways to make make these things clear to people. So just in terms of our opening definition and description of prayer, we saw a definition and then uh, as a sub-point one, there's five sub-points. Sub-point one, we have to confess our sins. Sub-point two, you don't pray to be spiritual. You pray because you are spiritual. Now, there are a lot of people in the Christian life who want to put the cart before the horse. They want to think that because you give money, you go to church, you have a nice, thick doctrinal notebook, you pray, you pray in public, you have mellifluous phrases that just tumble off the end of your tongue, that somehow that makes you spiritual. No, it doesn't. You do not Pray to be spiritual. Prayer is not an exercise you go through in order to be spiritual. It is the result of spirituality. Spirituality is your relationship with the Lord. Prayer is a result of that. It is not a cause of that. Prayer giving, witnessing are manifestations or functions of your royal priesthood. They are the consequences of your spiritual growth, not the cause of your spiritual growth. So you do not pray to be spiritual, but you pray because you are spiritual, because you're in right relationship with the Lord and you are growing spiritually. Third, prayer demands concentration and thought. Yes, you heard me correctly. Prayer involves concentration and thought. In fact, if you analyze the prayers in the Scriptures, you will discover that a lot of concentration and thought went into some of those prayers. And that the people who prayed them searched the Scriptures in order to find certain doctrinal arguments they could use in order to convince God that they should pray, that He should answer their prayer. Now, that's not true in every case, in every situation, but it is true at some time. So prayer demands concentration and thought. The issue is not how emotional... You can be, when you come to God, that somehow in the intensity of your emotion, that you will impress God with your sincerity, and that because you are so sincere and so genuine, God will answer your prayer. That's not true. Just think about the fact that when you get that speeding ticket, 
and you're driving 50 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone, that it doesn't matter how sincerely you thought the speed limit was 50, you're still going to get the ticket and still have to pay that exorbitant fine. Point number four, prayer should be the highest priority in your life after learning Bible doctrine. Prayer is our communication with God. It is not some afterthought tacked on to the spiritual life. It should be our highest priority, second only to learning and applying Bible doctrine. And the fifth sub-point by way of introduction is that as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. Our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. Either we are out of fellowship and in carnality, so God does not listen to our prayers, or we just completely miss the whole doctrine of prayer, and we don't know how to pray or what to pray for. And so, because we are failures in our spiritual life, we don't understand the will and the plan of God, we don't understand what to pray for, And it's just an exercise in frustration. Now we have to look at the mandate for prayer. The mandate for prayer. And this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. We're told to pray without ceasing. The verb there is prosukamai which is in the present middle imperative. Now, I said earlier that the present imperative means that this stresses, that this command, this mandate, is standard operating procedure in the spiritual life. Prosukamai is the standard word for prayer. It means to pray, to entreat, to request, or to ask. The the, uh, middle voice is really a deponent middle and it, it is, it's, has the form of a middle voice, but it is active in meaning. That means you are to pray. It is your volition that is addressed in the imperative. This is really the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. It's not Jesus wept. There's three words in Jesus wept. This is the shortest in the Greek text. Two words, prosukamai. Literally, it's adialeptos, prosukesta. And the adialeptos is your adverb of time or manner. It is describing the frequency of prayer. It is continuously. Continuously. We are to pray continuously. It's to be a standard reaction. and close your eyes and and use these and thous when you pray. But just always in a position where you can pray bullet prayers, one-shot prayers to the Lord, constantly keeping that line of communication open with the throne of grace. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, emphasizing the fact that our gratitude towards God is often a barometer of our spiritual life. The more we grow, the more knowledge of doctrine that we have, the more we realize all that God has done and provided for us, the more gratitude there should be in our lives for everything that we have. Gratitude is a gauge to your spiritual growth. The verb there, devote yourselves, is the verb proskartereo, 
proskartereo, it's again a present active imperative. And the present imperative means it's standard operating procedure to devote yourself to something, to keep on doing it, to persist in it, to make it a habit pattern in your life. We are to devote ourselves to prayer. And this was exemplified in the early church as seen in Acts 2.42. And they, that is all those, this is specifically referring to all the new believers that were saved after the day of Pentecost there in Acts 2. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What we learn in this verse is the priorities of the believers in the early church. They were continually devoting themselves, and this is the same word used in Colossians 4.2, proskartereo. Here it's a present active participle. It's an adverbial participle of manner describing their priority system. They, they continually devoted themselves to two things here. It looks like four in the English, but because of the way it's constructed in the syntax of the Greek, there's only two things. The first is apostles' teaching, their doctrine, didache in the Greek. They devoted themselves to doctrine. That was their highest priority. The second priority was to fellowship, not social interaction with other Christians. To make sure that we all understand that this is not talking about fellowship with other human beings, Christian social interaction, having a good party, eating a lot of cookies and donuts and drinking coffee together between service on Sunday morning. Luke gives us an appositional phrase to describe what he means by fellowship. That's why it looks like there's four things. There's only two. The last two things, breaking of bread and prayer, that phrase is appositional to fellowship. That means it describes what he's thinking about in terms of fellowship. Fellowship consists of breaking of bread. That is a term used to describe the Lord's table. The Lord's table is our time when we sit around, we remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and it is a meal of fellowship with God. Prayer is an expression of communication with God. So fellowship in this passage is not talking about fellowship with other believers. It is talking about fellowship with God as specified by the Lord's table and prayer. So they are devoting themselves, first of all, to doctrine, and secondly, to fellowship with God through the Lord's table. In the early church, they celebrated the Lord's table just about every time they got together. The first day of every week, at every Sunday service, they had the Lord's table. And it wasn't just a little, small swallow of wine and a tiny piece of bread. They had a whole meal and then concluded it with with the wine and, and and the bread. But all of that was to signify their fellowship with God and prayer. So this was their priority. Now, we have to ask a question that is raised in these verses in James. James says you have, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, the implication there is that there are certain things that God is standing by to give us, but He's waiting for us to ask. 
Now that brings into play a word that I'm beginning to realize some, a whole realm of, of, of doctrinal things. And because of some study I'm doing in, in, in Genesis 1 through 3. And that is contingency. Now that word is almost a nasty word for some people. But God has built contingency into His plan. Another word is flexibility. Now remember, God is omniscient. This means that God knows all the knowable. God knows all the actual, and God knows all the possible or potential. God is omnipotent, which means that God is all-powerful, and He's powerful enough to bring about everything that He intends. So between His omniscience and His omnipotence, God was able to structure a plan that includes within it a certain degree of flexibility and contingency. Now, I've said this before. Just think about the creation. When God created all of the animals in Genesis chapter 1 on the fifth and sixth days, when God creates all the fish and all the birds and all the beasts of the field, all of the animals were herbivores, gramnivorous. That means they were grass eaters. If you are a grass eater, if you are just eating grass, you have a certain dental structure and a certain kind of gastrointestinal system for the digestion of grass. But after the fall, these animals, like the lions and tigers and bears and Tyrannosaurus rex and who knows what else, changed. They changed in terms of their physical form. Their dental structure had to change. Their gastrointestinal system had to change. All of this had to, had to change. The lion was still a lion, but now the lion has to have a different type of dental structure and gastrointestinal structure to break down to just meat. In the millennial kingdom, the lion is going to be changed back again because there won't be carnivores in the millennial kingdom. So God built into the very structure, the genetic DNA coding of the animal kingdom and, the, in a sense, the plant kingdom, the, the flexibility to handle the chaos introduced by sin. That's pretty profound if you stop and think about how much is in there, and yet God still is sovereign and still in control. The same thing happens in terms of God's plan for our life. God has certain contingent blessings in time for us. They are contingent. It's part of the flexibility that God's built into that plan for our lives. And they are dependent on whether or not we pray. And prayer truly does change things. Turn with me in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. This is one of those passages that causes a few problems for some people trying to understand God. That's because we try to put often we 
try to put God into a box. One of the things that is remarkable about God is that we can't understand Him because, frankly, God ought to be a little beyond human comprehension. Now, we can understand everything God has communicated to us about Himself. His revelation is designed to be understood and understandable. It is clear and lucid. Now, that doesn't mean that the first time you look at the doctrine of the Trinity that you're going to understand it or understand fully the the triune uh, personality of God. But it does mean that with study and concentration, you can understand it. It is possible for man to understand it. Maybe not everything that can be understood, but we... Maybe not everything about it, but we can certainly understand everything that God has revealed about it that is designed to be understood. Now, when we look at this passage, we're looking at a situation where where the Israelites have been freed. They've come to Mount Sinai, and while Moses is up on the mountain, they convince Aaron to build the golden calf and and the... uh, they worship the idol, and the result is, is all of this uh, carnality that takes place. And God decides that he is going to destroy the people because, of his, uh, because they have violated him, violated his will, and because they have rejected him. And look at how this is handled by Moses. Verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. That's a good translation. And literally in the Hebrew, it means they're stiff-necked, which is a representation of bowing the neck and, not, and refusing to submit to authority. And they have resisted the authority of God. And then God says, Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, notice how Moses handles this in verse 11. He says, Moses, the text says, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God. And here we have the P-A-L of the verb chala. Looks like this. C-H-A-L-A-H. And in the P-A-L stem, which is the intensive stem, it means to mollify, to appease, to entreat the favor of someone. And here it it has the idea of inducing God to show favor toward Israel instead of wrath and chastisement. So Moses is entreating the Lord. And notice the use of the terminology here. He entreats the Lord his God. And whenever you see the Lord spelled in small caps like this, that is always a translation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton Y-H-W-H, which is usually pronounced Yahweh. When the Jews read it, they never pronounce the name of God. They always read it Adonai. So Moses entreats the Lord his God, and this emphasizes God's special covenant relationship with Israel. So there's a specific reason why this name is emphasized here. Moses is emphasizing, wants to remind God just by the use of his name, of his covenant promise. 
And he says, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And then notice how he argues with God in the presentation of his position. Now, now when I say argue with God, I don't mean argue in the way we use it every day where one person picks up, takes one side and somebody else takes another side. I'm talking about how a lawyer uses the word argue to present a case, to logically present his, his case for why God should change his mind and should respond, uh, should not destroy the nation Israel. He says in verse 12, Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? In other words, he's saying, Lord, think about what this will do to your reputation among men. The, if you destroy the nation Israel, then people will think that you, they can't trust you. And then look at his second argument in verse 13. He reminds the Lord of the doctrine that is established in the Abrahamic covenant. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. This is a reminder that God has made a covenant promise to Abraham that God would raise up a people through whom God would bless the entire human race. And notice that even the names he uses, he doesn't say... Normally, you'll find in the Pentateuch the phrase Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here you see Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is the name that God gave to Jacob when he renewed the Abrahamic covenant with him. So all through this, we see that Moses is paying particular attention to the very words he uses in his prayer so that everything he is saying is crafted to remind God of his promise in the in Genesis to Abraham and his covenant promises to Abraham's descendants. And then the result is in verse 13 Verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, the thing that we need to recognize here is when it says that God changed his mind, we have to realize that in the character of God, God is immutable. This means he does not change. This is primarily directed at his character. God's character never changes. He is always faithful to his promises. If, Abraham, if Moses had not petitioned God to change, God would have destroyed everyone except Moses. And he would have raised up the nation Israel through Moses. Moses is still a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God would not have violated his covenant by so, by so doing. So the, the fact that God changed his mind affects his relationship and goes back to the idea that God has built in to his plan a certain amount of flexibility depending upon whether or not we pray. So prayer actually changes things. And we'll look at a couple of more examples of this next time when we come back next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for our time this evening for what we are learning about prayer and how important this is in our spiritual life, and that prayer does indeed have an impact 
and how things go in our life. May this challenge us to a more consistent prayer life and realizing its significance and importance in our own walk with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest and who continually intercedes for us. Amen.